Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. What is it that you're thirsting for? Do you ever take time to look on the inside, to look in your heart and ponder, what is it that really motivates you? Like, why do you say certain things or do certain things or act a certain way or spend so much time on certain things or worry about certain things? What is it that's really driving you? Is it maybe because you just want to be accepted? You just want to be accepted. And, and so you, you act a certain way around someone because you want them to accept you. Or is it success? Is that what motivates you? You want, you want to be successful in your career or feel successful as a parent. You're doing a good job as a mom or a dad or successful in the ministry that you're involved in in church. Or maybe you, you just like praise a lot. You want to be recognized. You want other people to look up to you. You want to be liked. What is it that motivates you? What is it that you're really thirsting for? Well, at this point in Lent, as we're starting to settle down into Lent, the church offers us a a biblical story that points to our deepest thirsts. It gets us to to really examine what is it that we, on the superficial levels of our lives, what is it that we're searching for, we're grasping after to try to fulfill us, to make us happy, to make us feel satisfied. But those things will never really bring the deep satisfaction that only Jesus can bring. There's a wonderful biblical story about a woman that Jesus helps get in touch with her deepest thirsts. And the Catholic Church holds up this upcoming Sunday. Uh, This is one of the options for the readings here in the middle of Lent so that we can thirst for Jesus and live in that deepest thirst, which is only for him. And that's what we're going to take a look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri, and so grateful to be with all of you. I I was praying for you all this last week in Rome. So I just got back from the Rome pilgrimage, the Lenten Rome pilgrimage I was doing, and it it was just a great blessing. We we got to uh, pray at the tombs and the relics of seven apostles of 70 different saints and martyrs and popes throughout church history. We got to see the Holy Father, Pope Francis. Uh, We got to do a trip up to Assisi and walk in the footsteps of Francis and Claire. We got to go down to the first century houses, a couple of these first century houses that opened up their homes to the Eucharist, these early Christians that opened up their homes to people like Peter and Paul, and they they celebrated the Eucharist, an incredible gift. Uh, we got to go to the Vatican Museums and the Sistine Chapel. It was just incredible. And as I mentioned last week to you from the podcast that I, I recorded right there in Rome, what a blessing it was to be there in this time where uh, there weren't all the large crowds that you're normally having to compete with in Rome. And we were able to really prayerfully, peacefully enter into the sacred sites and see so many things that, that normally you just can't see because of the large crowds. So I mentioned last week that I'm going to be going again. And if anyone's interested, you can join me this summer, June 22nd to the 30th, June 22nd to 30th here this summer, 2022. Uh, and if you want to learn more information about the pilgrimage, you can email me at Rome dot edward three at gmail.com that's rome.edwardsri at gmail.com it was so wonderful we had couples celebrating anniversaries couples just coming together we also had siblings we had families we had friends we had individuals just joining the group and it's always amazing to me we had people from all over all corners of the united states recovered from maine to washington state to southern california to florida to texas to uh, uh, michigan everywhere in between and it always happens that people when 
whether they come by themselves or they come with friends and family, they the whole group as a whole really unites together. And it was just a blessing being with them. Uh, please know I prayed for you during the pilgrimage. Uh, and if you're, anyone's interested in learning more about the pilgrimage I'm going to do this summer, uh, you can email me again at rome.edwards3 at gmail.com. We're offering the early bird discount, uh, $100 off for anyone who registers between now and the Feast of the Annunciation. The Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. If it's postmarked by March 25th, the registration form and deposit coming in, you get $100 off the final price. Again, email us at rome.edwardsree at gmail.com for information about the June pilgrimage, June 22nd to 30th this summer. Now, I want to bring you into a biblical story that is just one one of my favorite stories in, in all of the New Testament. And it's a story that maybe you've heard before, the story of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. But I bet many of you may not have heard it at this deeper level I'm about to share with you. I'm going to unpack some things from biblical scholars that have pointed out uh, what the richness of what's really happening in this scene. So uh, I want to draw you into this at a much deeper level. So first of all, the story begins with Jesus who had been in Jerusalem. He had been performing miracles there, and he, he leaves Jerusalem, Judea, which is down in the south. And he's going to go back up to Galilee, which is the northern region where the Israelites had dwelt. And uh, he's from Nazareth, which is in Galilee. He's, you know, he's going to do his his most of his public ministry and based in Capernaum, which is on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. So he's going to go back up to Galilee. But it's very interesting. John's Gospel, chapter four, verse four, makes this very interesting statement. After it says he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, you might just read that line, oh, he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, there, there he goes. You just might not think that there's that much to a little line like that. He had to pass through Samaria, John chapter 4, verse 4. But if you know the geography and you know the history of the travel uh, between Galilee and Judea, this line would stand out to you because geographically, he doesn't have to pass through Samaria. Samaria is in between the land of, of Galilee up in the north and Jerusalem down in the south where he was. And it is one route to go, but it's a more arduous route. It's, it's more mountainous. And, and as we're going to see, the Samaritan people aren't very hospitable to the Jews. There's a big rivalry, a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So you, you, you very likely, if you're a Jew and you want to go back up to Galilee, you, you may not want to pass through Samaria. There was another route that was often taken, and that was around the Jordan River, where you would, you would bypass the more mountainous area. It's a little easier to travel through. Uh, to, to to go up north to Galilee. And so when it says the that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, don't think of that as like a geographical necessity. He had to pass through Samaria for the sake of mission. He wants to go to the Samaritan people. But even more than that, he's going to go to a particular Samaritan woman here. And when I think about how he had to pass through Samaria, I think this more is a reference to his love. He had to go for the sake of love. So driven by love, he had to go to meet this woman of Samaria at the well. The God of the universe passing through this area. He could have gone the other way. He could have gone around uh, the, the Jordan River. It was a lot easier to travel that way, but he had to go out of love 
for the Samaritan woman and her people. That's what we're going to see. In fact, there's an interesting pattern that we see here, this idea of uh, in the Old Testament, if you if you were reading, reading the story as a first century Jew and you heard about Jesus, who's a Jew, who's passing through Samaria, going kind of like into foreign territory here, dwelling among the Samaritan people, and he goes to a well, you know what you would expect? You would expect romance. You expect, oh, he's going to find his wife there, because that's, that's the pattern you have in the Old Testament. You have uh, someone like Moses, the famous Israelite leader. He goes to this foreign area and he goes to a well. And what does he do? He finds his wife Zipporah there. Same thing in the book of Genesis. Jacob goes to a foreign territory, a foreign land, and he goes to a well. And who does he meet? He meets Rachel, the one that's going to become his wife. So uh, this pattern of a man journeying in a foreign land goes to a well, he finds his spouse. When we see Jesus going to this foreign area, Samaria, and he goes to a well all of our antennas should be up. If we're reading the Bible carefully, our antennas should be up. We should be expecting, oh, some kind of romance is going to take place here. Some kind of marriage is going to take place here. And and maybe not on a natural level, we're going to see this is going to be on a mystical level, a spiritual level. But again, Jesus had to go to Samaria, like, like a bridegroom longing to be with the one he loves. He's motivated by love. That's what we're going to see is driving him. But let's read on in the story. He goes to the well, you know the story, and it, it's midday. It says it's in the sixth hour. So biblically, the sixth hour is midday. It's just the hottest time of the day. And he goes to the well, and he's going to ask this woman for a drink. In verse seven, he says to her, give me a drink. And again, that's astonishing, you know, just to think about this, that here is Jesus. He's the God of the universe, and he's going to come to her and say, I need something from you. And and as you know, the story goes on. It's going to be revealed that this woman has, you know, a, a, a little past, you know, in her life, you know, a little immoral past, having been with all these five different men. And so Jesus, you know, his first words to this woman, you know, his first words aren't, hey, lady, repent. You know, I know what you're doing. You're a sinner. You know, hey, don't you know I'm 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 the savior of the world. You better come believe in me. That's not his first words. It's remarkable. His first words to the woman is expressing some kind of need he has. He needs something from her. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the word that was made flesh, the eternal son of God. He needs something from us. He longs for us. He longs for her. He longs for you and he longs for me. He says, give me something. Give me a drink. Mother Teresa reflecting on this, this beautiful story says, you know, just how astonishing this is. Just shocking, surprising that God needs something from me. He's thirsting for something. What is he thirsting for? He's thirsting for my soul. He's thirsting for my love. He's thirsting for my attention. He's thirsting for me to thirst for him. I think that's the real heart of the story on a spiritual level is Jesus is thirsting for me to thirst for him. He's not just thirsting for my soul. He is, of course, but he wants my attention. He wants my time. He wants my surrender. He wants me to thirst for him. And and, and it saddens him when I thirst for other things in life that, that, that aren't going to fulfill me. Like I, I'll, I'll thirst, I just want to be accepted. I want to be accepted by my boss. I want to be accepted by these coworkers. I want to be accepted by these people in the parish or these certain family members. And so I spend so much time trying to be accepted by others. It saddens Jesus when he sees this 
thirsting for things that aren't going to satisfy us. He wants us to thirst for him. Do you thirst for Jesus as the number one thing in your life? It saddens Jesus when we thirst for just, you know, wasting time on our phones. You know, we just click on one thing after another. We check one score after another. We look at one social media page after another. We follow one video after another. You know, we, we, we just entertain ourselves with pointless amusements that really, we know that they don't satisfy. It saddens Jesus. That time, that's time we could have spent with him. That's time we could have spent with our kids. That's time we could have spent with our spouse, with other people. That's time we could have spent in silence. And yet we, we waste it on superficial things so often. Jesus says, give me a drink. And, and he means that on a deeper spiritual level. Just picture Jesus coming to you, thirsting, and he's just, just, he's, he's just dying of thirst. And then you pick up your phone to go check Instagram. I mean, how sad that is, <laughs> you know, you know, or he's thirsting for you and you pick up your phone to check ESPN. Like what's the latest score? You know, no, no, no. Let, let's, let's give Jesus our heart. He, he's thirsting for you to thirst for him, to seek your deepest fulfillment and meaning in life in him. Now the story goes on. And the woman is shocked that Jesus is coming to him and asking this question. Uh, the Samaritan woman in verse 9 says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, let me unpack this story here. There's, there's two things going on here. On one hand, you know, she's a Samaritan. And as I've already mentioned, the Samaritans are rivals with the Jews. Did you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Samaritans actually are like distant cousins of the Jews. The people of Israel used to be all united together, 12 tribes united together in one nation. And those 12 tribes were united under Moses. They were united under Joshua. They were united under King David. But around about about 10 centuries, a little less than 10 centuries before Jesus, the the kingdom was divided. David's kingdom was divided in his in the third generation after him. And and what happened was the 10 tribes left the southern tribes of the south. 10 tribes to the north broke off from the tribe of Judah. That was David's tribe. They broke off from Jerusalem. They broke off from the Davidic kingdom. And they broke off from the, the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't want to have anything to do with the temple. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with all the sacrifices in the temple. They didn't want to have anything to do with David and his sons and the kings. They broke off and they, they made their capital city Samaria. So those 10 tribes, known, they became known as the Samaritans, and, and they intermarry with all these other nations around, and they, they're, they're kind of like viewed by the Jews as not true Israelites anymore. They're viewed as like half-breeds. These are people that, yeah, we were related to them, but they've intermingled and married with all these pagans, and they worship those pagan gods, and they're not true to the one worship of the one true God anymore. They've mixed their religion with all these other pagan religions around them. So the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet here's Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman and he's asking her for something. It's shocking. So that's why the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan, you know, something you want to drink from me? You know, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, but it's more than that. She also says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a woman? Like you're a man and here we are in midday. And I'm the only one here. Your disciples have gone into town to look for some bread and it's, and you're here and I'm here and it's just us. 
Like in, in, in first century customs, this is kind of inappropriate for a man to be alone with a woman who's not his wife. Uh, and so she's pointing that out as well. But again, remember, remember Jesus longs for her and he longs for her to long for him. He thirsts for her to thirst for him. And her story is our story, my friends. Jesus is longing for us. He's seeking us out, even at the well, even at this situation that is, is, is a little messy here. And she's got a very messy life. In the midst of our own messiness, in the, mess, in, in the midst of our own sins, Jesus still thirsts for us and he's seeking us out. And Jesus says to her that he's going to come and bring her living waters. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And it's interesting, the word there for living water in Greek is hydrozoe. And on one hand, it can mean flowing water, which is how she takes it. Like she's thinking, oh, great, I can just get some fresh flowing water here. This is, that would be great. I don't have to come to the well again. But Jesus means it at a deeper level. The word hydrozoe can mean living water, like waters of life. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to give you waters of life, living waters, the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the water that truly satisfies. And I won't go through all the details here, but I think the most pivotal part of the story comes in verse 16, when Jesus says to her, go call, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. So it's interesting, some biblical scholars say that Jesus is all of a sudden changing the topic. They've been talking about water, talking about Jews and Samaritans, living water, and then all of a sudden he changes the topic to talk about, you know, go get your husband. Well, I don't think he's changing the topic at all. I think he's spot on on the topic here because they've been talking about thirst. He thirsts for her. He thirsts for her to thirst for him. That's the, that's the central topic in this whole dialogue. And, and, and when he starts talking about go get your husband, it's to draw attention to how she is seeking her thirst, being satisfied, not in God, but in, in these men, in all these men that she's been with, one after another after another. She's searching for love in all the wrong places, as the song goes. And Jesus is going to point that out to her. So he says to her, go get your husband, go call him here. And she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. And now the woman realizes, uh-oh, <laughs> he's reading my soul. He knows my past. He knows I've had all these five other husbands, these five men. Uh, and, and she says, I love the next line, uh, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> well, let, let's unpack this. There's a lot happening in this line here. When Jesus says in John chapter four, verse 18, you have had five husbands. This isn't just like a random story. Oh, you know, this woman's had five different men. No, no. What we're going to see is something very profound here. I want you to pay attention really closely right here. This is, this is one of the coolest moments of the story. If you don't remember anything else, you, you grab this point, you're going to be brought deep into biblical salvation history here. So ready? You know, this idea of five husbands, the Samaritan woman having five husbands, it recalls a passage from the Old Testament. It recalls the history of the Samaritan people. You see, in 2 Kings 17, the Samaritan kingdom was overtaken by the Assyrians. And you know what the Assyrians did? They didn't just, just take over a kingdom. 
what they did is they they would they would take over the kingdom and they would take the people and spread them around uh, to scatter them to to intermarry with other nations and they would bring foreign nations into the land and force the remaining people they had just conquered to intermarry with those other nations. It was a way to kind of break ethnic identity, break nationalistic kind of identity, and and so if you're forced to intermarry with all these other nations, you lose your 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 identity as a people, and you're going to be less likely to want to rebel against the Assyrians. That was their strategy for when they took over new kingdoms. And that's what they did when they took over Samaria. And you can read in 2 Kings chapter 17 how the Assyrians, when they took over Samaria, these 10 northern tribes, you know what they did? They brought in five nations to intermarry with the Samaritans. And, and the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 17 that those, those five nations brought their five sets of deities. And it says that the Israelite people, the, the northern tribes, the, the Samaritan people, started not only intermarrying with these five nations, but they started worshiping those five Baals, the five deities of the pagans that were brought into their land. The five Baals. Now, what's interesting, the word Baal, that was the word for some of these pagan gods. The word Baal can mean master, lord, but you know what else it can mean? It could mean husband. It could mean husband. And so the Samaritan people started worshiping five Baals, five other pagan lords or five husbands. You see, the woman in her own history has embodied the, the history of her whole people. And what's most fascinating is that the prophets foretold that one day God would come back as bridegroom and reunite himself to his people. Even those northern tribes, those Samaritan people who had intermarried with the pagans and started worshiping those pagan gods, that a bridegroom would come. God, the bridegroom would come. Hosea chapter two even says that, that God will go to the Samaritan people and he will come as a lover. He will come to reunite himself, to woo his people back, to win her heart back. And, and, and betrothed, the, betrothed himself to the people of, of Samaria again. And, and he says, no longer will you call me Baal, for I will be your husband. God is going to come as bridegroom to the people of Samaria. That's what Hosea chapter 2 foretells. And that the, the people will no longer call on the Baals, for God will be their husband. And here we have Jesus Christ, who at the end of John's gospel, chapter three, is called the bridegroom. And in chapter two, he performs his first miracle in the context of a wedding, the wedding at Cana. Jesus is clearly being portrayed as the divine bridegroom, fulfilling Hosea chapter two. And he performs the miracle at Cana. He's called the bridegroom by John the Baptist at the end of chapter three. And then he goes on a journey to a foreign land, goes to a well as bridegroom. And he meets this woman of Samaria. He meets this woman of Samaria who has had five husbands. And her own personal history symbolically recalls the tragic history of her people, that the Samaritan people had fallen away from worship of the true God and started worshiping the five Baals, the five husbands of the other pagan nations. But now Jesus comes and he comes with love He thirsts for her that she may thirst for him. 
And as a result, she perceives he's a prophet. As the story goes on, she comes to believe he's the Messiah and she will leave her jar behind at the well. And she's going to go run and tell all the people in her village about Jesus. And she becomes one of the first evangelists in the fourth gospel, John's gospel. And the people come to believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. So the Samaritan people are being renewed. They're being rescued. They're being reunited with their bridegroom. Their marriage is being restored. So my question for you, my friends, is this. This is beautiful biblical typology, prophecy being fulfilled. I love it. But even more, I love the story and what it's saying to you and to me. We're that woman at the well. We've turned our hearts to different, maybe not pagan gods, but we've made idols out of being liked. We've made idols out of success. We've made idols out of our favorite sports team. We've made idols out of our Instagram pages. We've, we've made idols out of wanting to be accepted. There's so many things that we, that distract us from our deepest thirst. God put a deep thirst in our hearts that we oftentimes don't live at. We need to live more deeply from the depths of our soul. And that thirst is for Jesus. Jesus says to you, like he said to the woman, give me a drink. He thirsts for you that you may thirst for him. So here in the middle of Lent, as you're fasting, you're sacrificing, you're giving certain things up, go deep within the cell of your heart. Tell Jesus you're sorry for the times that you have not thirsted for him. Tell him you're sorry for the times you've tried to quench your thirst on superficial things that just won't satisfy. He's coming to you. He's begging for a drink. He's begging for your love, for your attention. Put those other things aside. Only Jesus can fulfill you. That's the message of the story, my friends. John chapter four, the woman at the well. Now, again, if you want to learn more about this pilgrimage that I'm doing uh, coming up here, June 22nd to the 30th, you can email me at rome.edwards3 at gmail.com. That's rome.edwardsri at gmail.com. And you can learn about the early bird discount between now and March 25th. If it's postmarked by March 25th, uh, you can get $100 off of the pilgrimage. Uh, Again, June 22nd to 30th this summer. Email me rome.edwards3 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. My prayers for you in Rome, they were, and my prayers for you as I'm back here in the States. Let's all thirst for Jesus and give him the depths of our hearts. Amen. Have a blessed Lent. God bless.